good morning. Um, let, let's get to know each other a little bit today. I like to drink coffee. I'm a coffee guy, yep, I see some hands raised, right? Some hallelujahs already beginning today, right? I like to drink my coffee black, right? Now, I realize everybody has their preference. Some of you are not coffee drinkers. Some of you are tea drinkers or, 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 coffee, or Coke or whatever it might be. I like to drink my coffee black, though. I believe that that's how the Lord Jesus would drink it. I believe it's a spiritual decision, but to each his own, Okay. But if a child ever gets a hold of your black coffee and they ever take a swig of that, there is a common reaction that happens. And it is one that, of the face getting scrunched up, a grimace, right? The, the, the kickback a little bit. Ugh. Ooh. If you've ever seen the movie Elf, one of the greatest films of this modern generation, all right, we see Buddy the Elf drinking some of his dad's black coffee in the corner of the, his office, and he takes a swig, and you see, right, Will Ferrell's face, he hits it perfect, right, the, the ooh, and he's trying to be kind, right, but it's just, right, it's gross. Why? There's a strong something to it. If you've ever, if you've ever had a salad, I know some of you are like, I've never had a salad, right? I don't eat that stuff. If you've ever had a salad in the purple stuff that you find in it, you get a big bite of the purple thing that's in that green madness. What is it? It's what we call cabbage. Cabbage is not from the Lord, okay? <laughs> right? It's just not, okay? But when you take a bite of it, it's the same kind of many times gut level reaction that you have to drinking coffee black. It's, it's one of, ooh. It's a shocking flavor. What is it? It's bitter. There's a bitterness to it. Oftentimes, at least when it comes to food, bitter foods are definitely an acquired taste. But when it comes to people, many times, right, we'll make the shift here, there is a bitterness to our lives at times that's far more significant than just food or what you're drinking. And I'm telling you right now, People have the same reaction to your life that they do to their foods when you live in such a way that out of your heart leaks bitterness. There's a cringe factor that happens, right? Where, where many times you don't see it and many times you don't feel it. You don't even recognize it. But when you are bitter, it leaks out everywhere into all these relationships and people know it. They sense it. And there is the, 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 oof, reaction. Now, if you're thinking of somebody else today, that's fine. But I have bad news for you. Every single person has to do the hard work of guarding their heart from becoming bitter. It's not the other person today. It's you. Which is why, right, words like must be nice, they tip our hand, do they not? When you're dealing with, yes, maybe it's jealousy, maybe there's some underlying anger, but many times what's at work, right, when, when the words must be nice come out of our mouth, right, we, we recognize that there is some bitterness beginning to leak out. Must be nice. Man, their life, it's just so much 
easier than mine. Must be nice. Because we're a portable church, we do a lot of events at my house. Okay, so just recently we had Galentine's Day at my home, which, you know, the ladies came to the house and it was a good time. I say that I really wasn't there for it, but it seemed like a great time. I took my boys and we went to the mall. My two youngest had never even been to the mall, right, except for like Santa pictures. So I was like, this is going to be a wild ride for them. They never they've never experienced the mall. And they rolled into the food court and they were like, what is this place? Right. That was my life growing up. All I did was go to the mall and Blockbuster. Okay. So with my home, guess what? We have pretty severe food allergies in my house to the point where like life-threatening at times and we've got to have the EpiPens, you know, at school and they have the expired EpiPens and then you got to get new ones and it costs what feels like about a billion dollars every single year to have preventative care for children who have very serious allergies. And by serious, I mean ER trips, as in like we have the oxygen reader and we're making sure that the oxygen levels are right if something happens and we know what to do and I mean it's just... It's a constant thing. And so on the way home from the mall, what it felt like only the bajillionth time, one of my boys is having a reaction. We don't even know to what. Most likely something at the food court. And his face is swelling up, and the whelps are coming, and the eyes are swelling shut. And of course, the average person, hear me, don't hear this as a slight. The average person would look at that and be like, oh my God, like go to the hospital right now. But having done it as many times as we have, sadly, you kind of know what you need to go to the hospital for and what you don't. And you get your oxygen reader and you're making sure that it's not an internal, you know, breathing problem and all the things. We feel like a doctor. Here's the deal. My wife and I were having this conversation Because this can become something in my own heart. This is how it works. You're with other families, and that family doesn't ever have to think about food or where they can eat or what allergies are present or what's being made in the kitchen or when they say that it's not made with peanut, are they actually being careful in that back kitchen? Do they really regulate that? Like, I I need to know these things because if he eats that, we may be going straight to the ER or something worse. And so you think about these things and you're weighed by these things and you're paying money for these things and then you see somebody else who doesn't deal with that and you think to yourself, must be... Nice. Your life is so much easier than mine, even though all I have really done in that moment is take a snapshot, a single little slice, and I've made a calculated judgment about the entire experience of this person's life. And I don't know anything about what they're actually carrying. I don't know anything about the heart that that God's given them or the things that they're weighed down by or their problems or their challenges or their difficulties. I'm simply looking at mine and bitterness, the root of it, has begun to grow. And that's how bitterness works. It grows in our lives when we believe we've been slighted, overlooked, or mistreated. 
That's how bitterness works. Let me throw another word out there, right? That's a little bit more expansive. Injustice. When you feel like you have experienced injustice, bitterness will start knocking on your door. Do you struggle with bitterness? Chances are you do. And you may not even realize it. Or maybe bitterness is knocking. It's just a thought away. And so what do we do about it? It's obviously not God's best for us. It's not how we would live our lives. It's not relationally, like this is not beneficial to us. We know this, but many times we just live with it. But is there a better way? The answer is yes. Must be nice today. It must be nice to know that we have a risen Savior, Jesus, who has faced all that we have faced and then some and gives us the strength by the power of the Holy Spirit to face any and all things and to walk with grace and humility and love with one another. Must be nice. It is nice to have a Savior like that. Mm -hmm. That's right. So turn to Ruth chapter one today. We're going to read out of the Old Testament, and this is a, a very iconic story about bitterness. And we're in Ruth chapter 1, one of my favorite stories, and we'll read the first five, five verses together today. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. That meant that there wasn't any food. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, they went to live for a while in the country of Moab. This is not the people of God's country, right? This is, this is a, a, a country where they worship a different God. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, he died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth, and they lived there about 10 years. Both Melon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. The story starts with tension, and many times it's tension that we don't even catch. In that Naomi and her husband Elimelech, they're leaving the land of Bethlehem, which means land of bread. In other words, the place that is supposed to be full of bounty and that should be filling their stomach is actually not. They're in the land of bread, and yet there is no bread. Instead, the Bible tells us there's an emptiness that exists. And so Naomi leaves. But interestingly enough, she leaves with a full life. She has a husband, and she has two sons. And she departs for a land that is not experiencing famine. And so she leaves that which is not going super great, the land of bread, and she goes to the land of fullness, right? Which is Moab at the time. And she has, she's married. She's got her two, two sons. Life is pretty good. And they get there, and her sons marry. And her husband dies. And her two boys die. 
And then within five verses, Naomi is, is carrying the grief and pain of what might be some of the most emotionally traumatic experiences you can carry as a human. She loses her husband. She loses her spouse and she loses her two sons. I have a grandfather who lives in St. Louis who's in a nursing home and he has lost his spouse. And he has lost his two sons. My father and my dad's brother. They only had two kids and my grandfather has outlived them both. And he has also lost his spouse and he has Alzheimer's. And so sadly, many times when I speak with him, and he's asking me about family or a, or a nurse attendant, and he hears that his two boys are not alive anymore or that his spouse has passed. It's as if he's hearing it for the first time. And if you've ever seen grief rack someone's heart, and then you get to see it again and again and again, you see what kind of pain this would have been like for Naomi. That's where she is. So what does she do? She packs her bags. And she does what most of us do when we're experiencing pain. She goes to that which is familiar, and that's home. Right? It's been at least 10 years. Verse 19. So, the, so at this point, Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, Ruth decides to go with her. Orpah stays in Moab. Interestingly enough, fun fact for you, Ruth... The narrative is going to shift to Ruth, even though we are not going to shift that direction today. But Ruth will end up being the mother, descended mother of Jesus. Through her lineage, Jesus will be born. And David, right, the king over all Israel, will be born. And interestingly enough, Orpah, the exact same kind of royalty, so to speak, is descended from her, only it is that of Goliath. You have one line going this way. And one line going that way. And Ruth, here we are in verse 19. The two women went on until they came to Bethlehem, the land of bread. And when they arrived, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she says. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full. But the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Now, I, you know, we have family in Nashville now, and we, we drive. You know, we make the commute. It's about three and a half hours, four hours. You know, we'll drive to Nashville to visit my side or my wife's side of the family. And I got to tell you, even in just a short drive, Three and a half, four hours. You know, when you, you pull into the neighborhood, right, of Papa and Gigi's house or the grandparents' house or my sister's home. And, well, what do you do? You kind of look at yourself in the rear view, you know, mirror and, you know, or you like the, the little thing you flip down and, and it has the mirror with the lights. And, you know, you kind of make yourself at least mildly presentable before your family sees you. Most of us do a little bit, right? Like your, your hair might be all, you know, kind of this from the drive. And you're like, oh, you know, let me just... Straighten out, or you, you kind of do one of these and kind of get the wrinkles out, or minimally you get out of the car and brush the crumbs off your pants or your shirt from your snack that you were eating on the drive there. You know this is what we all do, 
right? You want to look at least mildly decent. And so imagine having been gone for at least 10 years. This is like you showing up at your high school reunion. You know, you, you want to look nice for that. You want to have lost a couple pounds. You want people to be like, okay, right? Like, good to see you. You're looking good. And instead, Naomi rolls up. And what do they say? Is this, is this Naomi? My God, look at, look at how she's changed. And maybe just 10 years of living has done that, but I've got to think that 10 years of hard living and bitter living has begun to take its toll. Is that really you, Naomi? This isn't what you want being said. I don't even recognize her. And Naomi says, listen, don't call me that anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitterness. Because guess what? That's who I am now. That is my life. Now here's what Naomi has right. I love this about the story in that Naomi is honest about her circumstances. She's being honest, is she not? And, and, and many times in the church and in, in bodies of faith, there is a tendency at times for us to simply brush how we're doing, really doing, under the rug, right? And because I get it, we are people of faith. And so we want to be people of faith who are, who are seeing the good. And you want that. You need that. Hear me. We need to be people who are believing, who, you know, as Gerald got up and did the transition, we need a little fire in our, in our bellies and in our souls. But you can't always live that way. That isn't 24-7. Sometimes life is really hard and sometimes life is really painful. And to just act like you're doing just fine when in fact you're not doing fine isn't helpful. It's not good for you. And Naomi is minimally doing the right thing here in that she's honest about where she is. Life has been tough. I lost my two boys and I lost my husband. I love in the, in the opening chapters of the Bible, we have Adam and Eve and they sin against the Lord and, and the Bible tells us that they begin to hide. Right, And they create coverings from themselves and the, for themselves and they're hiding in the bushes and in the trees from God as God begins to walk through the garden. And what do the scriptures say in this moment that God begins to do? He begins to call out to them, Adam, Eve, where are you? Hey, where are you at? Where are you, where are you guys at? Now, I got news for you. In the opening chapters of the Bible, this is the God who creates creation. When the Bible says that God is walking through the garden asking where Adam and Eve are, he's not actually asking where Adam and Eve are as if he lost them or he's misplaced them or somehow they found such a good spot that he just can't find them. You know, like the, you know, the kid in the cupboard, we're like, man, I cannot find so-and-so anywhere. They've got the spot this time. No, God is drawing Adam and Eve out. And while in this particular moment, it is sin that they need to be able to embrace and own before their heavenly father. But still, I want you to catch this. The loving and pursuant grace of God is beckoning his children to come and acknowledge 
Where are you? Where are you at? Here I am. I've sinned, Lord. Or here I am. I am broken. Here I am. I'm really hurting, Lord. I'm angry. I'm upset. I'm mad. I don't feel like I can trust you. All these things. Where are you? So my question for you is where are you? I believe the Holy Spirit would ask you that today. And it's okay to be honest. I have had some years since living here that have been tough. And some of it comes out in my preaching and some of it has come out in conversations, but some of it you guys have never even heard. The only person who's heard about it is God and Amy. (laughs) She hears about everything. Maybe too much at times. Here's where Naomi gets some things wrong, though. Is that she allows her bitterness, or excuse me, she allows her circumstances to make her bitter. In other words, that emotion, that that thing, that bitterness is knocking at her door. And her circumstances, the pain of those circumstances are looking to define her. They're looking to take her identity. And so Naomi has allowed those circumstances to make her bitter to the point where she says, don't even call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara because my life is bitter. In other words, this is who I am now. This is what defines me. And I have news for you. As difficult as it might be to hear this at times, your pain does not define you. Only God Almighty has the right and privilege to do that. But it's so easy. There's a reason why so many times we deal with bitterness. It's because it's so hard at times to let God define us versus our circumstances. I want to sit and dwell in the pain of my life. And what happens is now this defining interaction of my circumstances with with me, my soul, it becomes the filter through which I see everything. Now my interactions with you, this is where must be nice, begins to take its toll. I can't see anything anymore unless it's through the lens of my own personal pain. And I project it on other people. And so no one else should have it easier than me. Your life is so much easier than mine. Must be nice. You see the worst in things long before you see the best in things. That's going nowhere. Good luck. Here's how it plays out. Parents, here's a good example. You, you've got teens, and sometimes, sometimes as you're raising teens, it's tough. In fact, let me just go ahead and say, raising teens is tough. Okay, fact. It's hard. And there are things that, are, raising children are, is just hard. And don't, if you don't have children this morning, don't hear this, or don't unplug from this moment just for a second. But one of the things that happens if you have teens that have, that have gone a different way than you were hoping or that you wanted, 
and it's been painful and it's been hard and life at home has been difficult. Now it's really easy to look at anybody else who's got young ones as they are stepping into teenagehood and you, you say things like, well, get ready. Good luck. Wait till they do this. Wait till they do that. And you just absolutely drop judgment and just negativity and doom and gloom all over everybody else's situation and scenario because it was painful for you. And you can't see anything other than your situation. It's the lens that colors everything. Well, good luck with that. Just wait. I've had people do that to me. And I'm like, you will wait. I'm not, could there be some difficult moments with my teens? Of course. But I'm not speaking that over them or into this situation. I'm believing the best. Oftentimes we don't, we, we, we think about, rarely do we think about, <laughs> what did I write? Rarely do you think about why something could work. You think about all the reasons that it won't. You've been mistreated, experienced injustice, and you've let it poison your heart. Paul writes about it in Hebrews 12. We think Paul wrote Hebrews and he writes, strive for peace with everybody. This is to the church, early church. And he's writing to the churches, and these letters are being passed around. And he says, strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In other words, nobody will see God if you forsake living holy for him. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. Oof. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. What on earth is happening here? You've got Paul writing to the churches, and he's, he's warning them about becoming bitter. And he's doing so with a story about Esau. Esau did not cherish his relationship with God. He did not cherish the privilege of being a firstborn son in his house. He did not cherish the things of God. And consequently, his younger brother did. He was hungry. So much so, while not great, Jacob the deceiver deceives his brother, takes his birthright, takes the... the uh, uh, Takes the blessing. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for. And Esau becomes bitter. Esau is what, in my house, we use little phrases sometimes, bitter berry, right? Esau is a bitter berry, okay? And that's who he has become. And Paul is writing, hey, don't become like Esau. Esau did not cherish the privileged relationship that God had given him. And part of that was walking in the holiness that God had for him. The distinction that there's something to be unique and different about it. And he simply despised it and did not care. So much so that now Paul is saying, hey, listen, you guys, like living right, don't just forsake this. There's a bitter root that might spring up inside of you. 
If you don't care about who God is and what God is doing and the holiness to which he's called you to, there's a warning about becoming bitter. Still, it seems disjointed. What's Paul writing about? I'm so glad you asked. He's quoting from Deuteronomy. Now, the churches that were catching Hebrews, this letter, were oftentimes Jewish, and so they understood this reference. You and I do not. And so Paul is writing, and he's quoting Deuteronomy 29. And God says through Moses, Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this covenant, blesses himself in his heart and says, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Here's the hard truth. I want you to hear this with grace and love. Because you can catch a little bit of it with Naomi. She's like, don't call me that. There's a little bit of stubbornness there. Do you, do you, I mean, maybe I'm injecting my own tone into it. But I, I also know, like, in, 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 as, as parents get older, as grandparents get a little older, have you ever caught at times there's a little bit of stubbornness, right? A, a little bit of, of, I'm not doing that. You know, or like, I've done it this way, I'm going to always do it this way, right? There's a, there's a stubbornness of heart that can take place. But what's happening in this moment, the writer here... Paul to Hebrews, Moses and Deuteronomy, he's warning the people to not let this bitter thing grow up inside of you. It's like a plant, right? And that plant produces fruit. And by it, a lot of other people are going to be defiled. And what happens when you experience, and the text doesn't tell us this, but I'm, I'm reading into it in this moment. When you experience hardship, and when you experience difficulty, as the people of God had experienced, they had experienced difficult things. And when you've gone through it, the tendency at times is to look at God and say, hey, where were you? And now because you feel slighted and overlooked and mistreated, your eyes begin to wander and to go to other places. And that's what Israel was doing here. And Moses is saying, don't do it. Don't let that bitter thing begin to grow up inside of you where your eyes begin to wander and your heart becomes stubborn. And you say to yourself, thanks, but no thanks. Got it from here. And you wander away from the Lord. And that's what bitterness does. It eats away like a slow poison, a poisonous fruit. And not only are you poisoned, you go to anybody's home where bitterness has taken root and mom and dad pass it right on to their kids. Oh, you can be bitter and be 13. You can So the text tells us that it spreads and bitterness is never limited to the person who has it. It's never contained there. But thankfully there's another way. We have diagnosed the problem. 
And the good news today is that the answer to a bitter heart is actually very simple. In theory. <laughs> in theory. Maybe not always in practice. First Thessalonians, the same writer of Hebrews, writes to rejoice always, to pray continually, and to do this thing that we don't want to do, and that is to give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Lord, to give thanks in every circumstance. Do you know my circumstances? No, I don't. But I know that there is a courage from the Holy Spirit that you can have, that if you will be hungry and cherish the things of God, that even in the midst of suffering and in the midst of difficulty and pain, rather than sitting and dwelling and becoming bitter and allowing that tree to grow in your heart, you can even in, in impossible situations begin to give praise from your mouth and begin to thank God, even in the midst of difficulty. Now, many of you have heard me share, you know, when, when you're a part of a church, right? And you've been a part of a church for a while. You hear pastor stories. You hear some of the same stories. So some of you have heard this, some of you not. But I was sharing this morning about losing my dad. He, he, he died at 51 of a heart attack. And Amy and I, my wife, we had just started dating and I was picking her up. This was outside of St. Louis. This was, it was in Illinois. And I, I was picking her up. It was over Thanksgiving. And I was at her grandparents' house. And all of her extended family are there. And as I'm picking her up, I get that call. That your dad had had a heart attack. And it did not look good. And I immediately leave the living room of her grandparents' house because I needed air. And I just began to walk this neighborhood where they lived. And I begged God. I said, Lord, please do not do this. I am asking you. I am begging you, please do not take my dad. I am not ready for this. I've given my life to you. I'm in full-time ministry, Lord. Can you throw me a bone? I know that you're powerful. I know you've raised Jesus from the dead. I see miracle after miracle after miracle in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You are a miracle-working God. God, would you, would you throw one of those my way? Please do not do this. But he passed. And obviously our Thanksgiving plans were wildly adjusted. And we get in the car and we begin to drive to St. Louis where I'll be driving straight to the hospital where basically what felt like our whole church was waiting for me. And I'll remember it as, as clear as I'm talking to you right now, driving in the car and having one of those moments where the Holy Spirit 
wasn't like there was this visible, tangible spirit in the core. But I put on some worship music, which is quiet, and began to pray, and I felt the Holy Spirit say, even in this moment, can you be thankful? And so in the car, in this moment, knowing that my dad had passed, I began to simply thank God for all the time that I'd had with him. God, I am not happy about this, and I don't pretend to be happy about it. But Lord, I also want you to know that I'm thankful for a good father. And I may not have gotten life that I wanted with him, but Lord, I'm thankful for 25 years. I'm thankful for the years that I did have. Thank you for his character. Thank you for his life. Thank you that he loved you and put you first. Thank you that he coached my baseball team and showed up to all my stupid sports. Thank you that he was there, that he was present, that he loved my mom. Thank you, Lord, and just began to rattle off as many things as I could find to be thankful for. Because if I didn't, there was a, a tremendous possibility that in this moment I was going to already become bitter that it would begin to take root, or at least the seed of it, right here. And I'm not saying that in the midst of everybody's pain and difficulty, you've got to be ready to do what I did. But that was where God came knocking at my heart and in my soul. And in that moment, I had one response, and that was, Lord, I am choosing, in the midst of the impossible, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to be thankful in all circumstances. I am not thankful for this. But I can still be thankful for this and for that and for this and for that and for this and for that. And Lord, I choose to believe that even in the midst of my loss, that you are still good. And God, while I don't, I don't understand it, I choose to believe that you are faithful. And that you are working all things out for those who would believe. While I've been preaching, the nursing home for my grandfather literally called. <laughs> Not sure what that's about. But you should know in this moment, I got to the hospital and it wasn't just, but moments later that my grandfather had a kind of a repentant moment where he turned back to the Lord. And it wasn't a momentary one, it was a legitimate one. And then it would be several months from that point in time when my grandfather and I stood in the baptismal and began to baptize my father's friends together. 
Can I sit here and tell you, well, that's why this happened and that's why? No, I can't. But you know what I can be? I can be thankful in all circumstances. That even in the midst of that, God used it for his glory. And it is out of our lips as we thank him, as we rejoice always and we pray continually. You know what it does? It gets that bitterness out. It's like squeezing it out. It's amazing when I'm thankful. I can't really be bitter. There's just no room for it. It's amazing when I rejoice. Bitterness just doesn't find that root. It just doesn't find that place. It has no hold. It has no grip. And thankfully, as we close with this, in fact, you can stay into your feet, church. We serve a good king, God Almighty, who sent his son, Jesus, who's the fulfillment of everything we read about in the scriptures. He is the Messiah, the Savior King. He is good. And do you know who has, if there's anybody who knows what it could have been like to become bitter, is it not Jesus? Persecuted, rejected, the Son of God, literally the one who loved us into creation, who walked to the earth, who was born, left heaven to become human, that we might see the love of the Father in, in person and up close. And yet he is rejected. People don't believe him. They refuse him. They spit on him. They whip him. They beat him. They crucify him. Could anybody in this moment have been bitter? Oh, yes. But thankfully, this man, this son, he showed us what it's like to be the kind of king, a different king, who rejoices, who is gracious, who is a man of peace who is patient and kind, who is loving, who is all the fruits of the Spirit, and then some. He knows your pain, and you have a Savior that you can turn to. Yes, He saves our soul, but He also saves us from things like becoming bitter. I can go to Him and say, Jesus, I need you. You know what I'm going through. Would you help me? Father, thank you in this moment. Lord, that you've...